Welcome aboard the USS Aeronome. To become a member of our crew, please visit perfectorganism.com slash support. As a patron of Perfect Organism, you'll receive exclusive perks and early access to content. Incoming audio transmission received. Please proceed to Subdeck 3 to begin playback. Thank you, and welcome aboard. I think we ought to discuss the bonus situation. Right. Brett and right. I, we think we ought to, we deserve full shares, right? right baby? You see, Mr. Park and I feel that the bonus situation is really good. Move, get out of there. Welcome to Perfect Organism, the Alien Saga podcast. I'm your host, Jamie Prater, and I'm joined by my co-host. Patrick Green, my friend. How you doing? And here we are. We are on, I'm doing well. We are on a, a bender, a <laughs> podcast bender, a podcast recording bender. Um, we are. And we just recorded a, a show for Shoal of Orion, which was great. We are here. I'm on the East Coast this next couple of weeks. I'm going to be meeting up with Patrick. Um, but we're here to kick off a series on H.R. Giger's beast, essentially. I don't want to call it the xenomorph because that's not its designation. But that's what it's known for, but essentially the beast we see in Alien. And me and Patrick have been talking about this a while, for a long time in terms of not really having a show discussing the beast itself. What it is, why it's scary, how we actually comprehend it what it does for us and eventually its legacy within the genre of creature features and sci-fi monsters and um why there's nothing like it and there probably never will be again yeah uh iconic is putting it lightly this is a creature that has you know gone into the hearts and minds of millions and millions of people around the world for the last 40 plus years and uh, of course, in putting this little kickoff episode together, we were realizing that we had way more to talk about than just for this episode. So this is actually going to be launching a, a mini series uh, of probably three to five episodes, depending, going into not only the creature design, but other Giger contributions. So things like the derelict, things like the lunar surface of, uh, of LV-426, things like uh, the face the facehugger and the chestburster, other design elements that Giger contributed, which have become so uh, immortal and so iconic in the decades since. Uh, and so for today, what we wanted to do, partly because we are recording a number of things, and also we're going to see each other in person soon, so we're going to be doing some recording then. So we're doing kind of a mini episode today to kick this off, to talk a little bit about our connections to it and what we think, but also to clear the way for more of our roundtable guests and you know the contributing hosts to come on and to share some of their thoughts, and also to hopefully get you in the conversation at Building Better Worlds to get some of your thoughts on especially the creature itself which, as Jamie mentions, is not technically, quote-unquote, the xenomorph. Um, you know, it's called many different things in many different places, just like the company, you know, wasn't Wayland yutani until it was Wayland yutani A lot of these things were added after the fact because, uh, you know, it wasn't known at first if this was going to be a franchise or not. And then they had to go back and start labeling things. So, uh, so you know, for, for my, you know, for all intents and purposes, I call it the alien 
Uh, you can call it the beast, you can call it whatever you want. But what what I think we can all agree is that it is great. And it is mm-hmm. for many of us, and I'm saying this personally for myself, it was the gateway into this franchise for me. And honestly, the gateway into science fiction, because I fell in love with this design as such a small kid. I mean, my, you know, my eldest son is older now than I was when I first got into Alien. Uh, and, and it never went away. Like from the very beginning, this this design just hooked its teeth into me. And I've been very gratefully pulled along the ventilator shaft for the intervening, you know, three decades. It's been a great ride. Honestly, like I, I think about this creature and I don't, I remember, of course, everyone knows that for all of us, Aliens was the entryway into the series. But I first remember seeing the creature really fully when it's, raising its head in front of Lambert. And I remember thinking, what is that? Like, because its head was moving up, and so you didn't know when it was going to end. So it's just moving, and you're moving down this smooth surface. And then all of a sudden, it reaches this end, which is where its mouth was. And I'm thinking, I, I don't know what I'm looking at right here. It was terrifying to me, terrifying to me, and the way it moved. And it's definitely was terrifying, but also I became obsessed with it too. Like, I can't stop looking at this thing. It's terrifying to look at. What is it? Dear God, I want to see more. Yeah. It's interesting to note that that head shape that you're talking about is, is that, I mean, the reason why we have alien, the way we have alien is the elongated head shape. The reason for that, and we'll get more into the history on other episodes, but the specific reason for it is, of course, Dan O'Bannon knowing Giger's work, you know, getting his book, showing it to Scott, Scott seeing Necronom 4, which is one of the ones with the motorcycle glasses and the long head, and mm-hmm. feeling immediately overwhelmed by this idea that that's the only monster that they could possibly have because of the head shape, because he just found the head shape to be so unsettling and so phallic and so different and perfect because all of the conversations, whether you're talking about Ron Cobb or Dan O'Bannon or Ridley Scott or Gordon Carroll, all these conversations that were happening in the early days were about, we can't let this thing look like a guy in a suit. Mm-hmm. And this is being made at an era where guys in suits were the, that that's what all of the creatures being presented looked like because that's what they were, right? We were no longer in the stop motion era for the most part. Robotics hadn't evolved enough yet to be very safe and viable for full body things like that. Uh, puppet puppeteering was, you know, being used, but it hadn't gotten to the stage it would be a few years later with aliens and with, you know, Stan Winston's workshop or Jim Henson for that matter. Dark Crystal, (laughs) right? So what we have is this moment where they're stuck, quote unquote, with a guy in a suit, but they want it to not look like a guy in a suit. And of course, they went through so many design iterations to get to something that they could work with. And then it was Giger's Necronom 4 that just was the template for everything. And they flew they flew over to Zurich to talk to him. They figured out how they were going to make it work with the copyright details and all these other things. And then Giger just went so uh, passionately into this project. I took these submicroscopic parasites and I made them larger. The parasites infest the person. And so the, the alien, the whole notion of it, and everything that it did was put together uh, through many days and nights over many months of just painstakingly considering and discarding every possible idea until I had a Uh, a life cycle for this thing that I liked. What I want to say quickly too is that a lot of the things that we feel are so iconic about the creature were things that were done 
in a rush. Like a lot of the decisions were made, you know, over wine at 1 p.m. because they just needed to get the next design draft done. Ridley was doing Ridley Grams and he's like, this doesn't look good. Let's fix it, right? So for example, the eyes being missing, which we brought up, I think, on a previous episode. Yeah, our previous episode, for me, is maybe my favorite aspect of the entire creature, the fact that it doesn't have eyes. That was like mm-hmm. a spur of the moment thing where Ridley was looking at the Necronom 4 sketch, you know, based sketches that Giger was doing. And he was like, it looks like it's got motorcycle glasses on. And other people were like, yeah, it looks like a Hell's Angel. And they're like, okay, so I guess we'll just like get rid of it. And they got rid of the eyes. And that's why it doesn't, <laughs> that's why it doesn't have eyes, right? The back spines, for example, you know, the tubules in the back of the the dorsal spines, those were things that were just added to balance the costume out. And they were like, well, okay, we'll keep it. it. It screws the silhouette up so it looks less like a guy in a suit. A lot of these things that have become centerpieces of how we think about aliens and film were just like production considerations at the time of the filming. A lot of it was about how to get the thing to fit Balaji Badejo properly, right? Mm-hmm. A lot of it was how do we make Eddie Powell not look super different when he drops down to get Brett, you know, we'll shorten some things and elongate some things. And those shortened and elongated design elements became the iconic blueprint that we associate with the franchise for 40, 43 years now, you know? It is really interesting. I mean, as, as much as we love Alien, the Alien series for the characters, um, for Ripley, for Hicks, for everything, you know, uh, for David, for Walter, for all of it, it all does go back to the terror of that design and how it shaped the genre forever and how there's nothing like it. There's just nothing like it. And even to your point, those decisions that were made on the fly and, and even backing up, some of the original designs by Dan O'Bannon and Ridley Scott, that creature looked very different. It was it was like tripedal. Um, it had like these weird hooks. The mouth, I mean, it looked weird. It looked kind of goofy. It didn't look like the creature that we had seen. But they were before Giger came in. They were like, well, what is this going to be? And I think the 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 mechanism of face hugger chest burster um, creature were there, but they didn't know what it was going to look like because that famous drawing now of Dan O'Bannon's of the chest. Burster. It looks like a little head. It looks like yeah, a little puppet cute. coming out of him. Yeah. yeah. Um, Giger really stepped in and like, oh no, let's let's make this terrifying. And even with Giger, it looked like a chicken. It looked like like a writhing chicken. It looked just very very odd. And they were pushing it like, no, let's let's do this. Let's go a little further. This looks a little too identifiable. But even in the beginning, Giger was playing with things that were familiar, but also making them very unsettling. Like baby chickens are cute, but like, so it kind of looked like a baby chicken, but it was, had been all of the the feathers had been taken off, but it wasn't really a chicken either. And just kind of getting under our skin. And even to the point of the, the creature itself, yes, it's very phallic, but it's also very feminine. So it was that uncomfortable. I mean, these days, I don't know if you can say uncomfortable, mixture of the two i don't think there's there's anything uncomfortable about male and female being because we're all we all have iterations of male and female in us even if we're biologically male or female and present as cis male or cis cis female um we are all still a mixture of the two um but there is something about not being able to identify what we're looking at in terms of the beast itself where it's got this the slender mouth and this this very um balletic way it moves yet it's also very phallic and deadly and the design is also beautiful it's beautiful it's intricate and delicate and no like tube is nothing 
doesn't make sense. Sometimes people, when they're designing lesser people, when they're designing creatures, they're kind of like, and we've seen like, um, what's that movie? JJ Abrams produced it about the creatures in New York city. Um, Oh, uh, Oh my God. Like the Cloverfield Cloverfield. We've seen those creatures over and 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 over meatballs with spikes. Yeah. Yeah. And they've got like four different sets of hands and or arms and they just kind of the way that they move and they all sound the same. And even to this day, creature design in general still looks like that. Giger came along way before we'd even seen that establishment in terms of what we see now in terms of creature design and said no. You know, I mean, with the aid of people pushing him like a Scott, like O'Bannon, pushing him further, like, let's do something else. Let's let's push this further. How do we make this look less like a man in a suit? And he made something, to your point, that was unidentifiable. And I think as we continue to get into this discussion in terms of its legacy and a creature design is a big, huge deal for me. It really is like, and I I watch, I'll watch a film for its creature design, like um, the Tomorrow War. They had those things called the white spikes or whatever. And they were interesting, but they were still versions of things I've seen before. In, there were meatballs um, still. They were just spiky white oh, yeah. meatballs. This time. Yeah, yeah, they were a little bit better designed for sure, but they're still Cloverfield inspired. And I've seen even in like the Phantom Menace or the, the Star Wars prequels, a lot of those creatures, the creature design, we still see elements of these designers all go to the same school and they all learn, you know, like, and so everything looks like a version of something we've seen before. And I think that's why Giger's beast stands the test of time. No one can touch it. As the, as the beast went on in terms of its design and we see it in the AVP films and certainly the, the worst, the culprit AVP Requiem, it's just brutalized. They've, they've disemboweled the design completely. It looks like garbage. Um, which is why it's in the shadow for most of the time. Um, but I, I'm really excited to talk about the intricacies of this and to really get into the minutia of what is it about this thing? What is it about this thing that is gets in our nightmares? What is it about this thing that makes it so unique? Why have has it not has no one else been able to design a creature more scary than this since? Yes. Uh, you know, I think of a film like A Quiet Place, for example, right? Which is another example of you, oh, you have God. this chance to do such an iconic creature design, and yet it looks like the same fucking meatball spike template that we've seen. And I'm like, how could you not make that? It's like, that could have been such a fascinating thing. You know, I, I mean, we have some modern, like the Demogorgon from Stranger Things, I think is is a sort of a modern iconic thing, but it's not beautiful at all in the way that Giger's, de- Giger's design is something that we just adore looking at because mm-hmm. it's so, it's so beautiful and it's so thought out. And uh, I want to, I want to bookmark what I was just saying about creature design, go back for a moment to something you were mentioning earlier about, you know, everything has a purpose behind it. That's something people overlook about Giger all the time, right? When, when, when Oban, I think O'Bannon is the one who's quoted as saying this, you know, they had Ron Cobb, who's one of the great conceptual artists in the history of film working on this, obviously. And he did a lot of great contributions to the technology and to the semiology and the symbolism and things, you know, the, the ship, uh, you know, symbolism. But uh, they also had him working on the creature in the beginning, and he they felt like he was hampered by this need to adhere to logic, right? That his creature, that that his designs looked like something that would recognizably hunt you down in a zoo. I think they say specifically they came from a zoo, whereas Giger's things came from a nightmare. And that's mm-hmm. the difference to me, right? Is that Giger's designs look 
like recognizably created from something we can recognize, but our brain can't put the pieces together. So you're talking about, you know, the mix of the male and the female, right? Like it, there, it's, I don't think it has anything even to do with gender expression or gender identity. I think it's more about the sexualization of those yes. things yes. coexisting, right? Because yeah. it's not like it's identifying as male or female outwardly. It's identifying as the sexual realization of what to be male or to be female represents physically to us. And those are things that we have to, you know, reconcile ourselves because those are things that are taboo for many of us until we're of a certain age, right? Sex is something that's thought of as being, you know, secret and 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 dirty until you're, you know, a teenager or whatever. And so for for a lot of us, we're kind of conditioned to to recoil a little bit or to think, should I really be looking this closely? Like, is this too private? What am I really seeing? But something that people overlook about Giger all the time is that he, for him, actually form did still follow function for the most part. A perfect example of this, actually a, a form of a function following form following function is that he needed to come up with a reason for the elongated head shape, right? That he had already been, you know, playing with in his Necronomicon or Necronom 4 specifically. Uh, and so he was like, what would go in there? And that was where the second jaw came from. This idea of what would be accommodated by a long head shape, you know, and he was like two things. One is this extrudable jaw, which was inspired by conversations they were having about making it more insectile. And two would be some sort of visible undercarapace with a brain in it, which of course initially was supposed to be maggots that were visible, but that didn't end up happening. Um, so this whole idea, and then bringing Carlo Rambaldi on, who at that point, you know, he'd won the Academy Award for King Kong. He was a big deal. He was very, you know, Hollywood. Uh, and so Giger was like submitting all of these designs and these casts to this studio in Hollywood while he was working, you know, at home and then hoping that they would make something out of it. And then they would send it back and then he got to see what it looked like and they were able to iterate these designs. But if you look at the earliest conceptual sketches for the inner jaw mechanism, it wasn't Rambaldi doing it. It was H.R. Giger. H.R. Mm -hmm. Giger was the one like, this is where it would slot in. Here's where the articulation point would be. And this is how it would come out. So we talk about Giger a lot as this id figure, right? This guy who was able to articulate these deep lizard brain dark dreams that we have. But he also was very scientific with the way that he made these things work, right? Without things like those dorsal tubules, the shape would feel unbalanced. Without having the head mounted the way it's mounted on the neck, Balaji wouldn't have been able to wear the helmet properly and it wouldn't have worked as something mm -hmm. that he could actually move around in. These were actual wearable pieces of amazing technology and Carlo Rambaldi's draw mechanism being a great example of that, that were functionally able to be filmed extensively and that were being filmed by somebody who still to this day, even though he gets more credit than he's due for some other things, doesn't get enough credit for the xenomorph, in my opinion, for the alien, which is Ridley Scott. Because it was Scott's idea to push it towards translucency, for example, mm -hmm. right? He loved how a lot of Giger's airbrush artwork had a translucent aspect to it. And he was like, let's make it more translucent, which is a strange alien concept to make it something that you could see things underneath the surface of, right? It was really Scott who pushed to get rid of the eye goggles and to have it just be sightless with a, a carapace, you know, and a skull underneath it. Ridley Scott, you know, as a, a visually brilliant person, deserves a lot of credit, I think, for helping to realize this thing on screen. But of course, it was Giger who was there sculpting this every day with these assistants and coming up with things like that amazing tail that is so iconic. And so going back to what I had bookmarked, which I'm surprised I remember after all this, uh, about the way that the beast has been treated in subsequent films, part of why I think it's become shittier and shittier until Covenant, because I actually love the design in Covenant. I do too. In my opinion. Yeah. But I think in, in every previous iteration of it, you know, that the warrior aliens and aliens are great. 
but feel less, you know, beautiful, obviously to me. And yeah. as it goes on, you know, the runner alien, I, I don't love for its look so much as I love for the way it acts and what it represents from a story standpoint, but it's a good design. They get worse and worse, I think, because it becomes reduced to the predatory nature that it has, right? You start seeing, for example, post-resurrection, more fangs that are visible on them. They look more beastly. They look more muscular. The tail becomes like a whipping mechanism with huge spines on it and a big spike at the end. You start seeing, uh, you know, by the time you get to AVP, these like warrior creatures that don't look like it's, there's like no doubt what they're there to do. Like they're there to kill, right? They're protected. They're armor plated. Whereas the creature in Alien and the creature in Covenant are both examples of something that is so delicate that you're unsure what it even wants to do with you until it does, right? And that is what I think is so fascinating about both of those designs. You know, and I and I I want to make sure we do talk about Covenant, but just going back to the big chap for a second, to me, part of what's so beautiful about it is that it doesn't need to look at you to convince you that it's that it has intent behind it. You just intuit it because it's like something you saw in a nightmare once that you tried to forget about. And that to me is the everlasting beautiful appeal of that creature design. Mm-hmm. And the question, what's it doing? We don't know. What does it want? Well, it might want to rape you. You know, that's even scarier than one. Okay, we get it if it wants to kill us, but it might not want to kill you. So what does it want to do with you? That's terrifying. And then you see the, even that inner jaw is almost very like a penis. It's like a a penis in its mouth that does its own kind of raping as well on top of its reproductive function, which is the face hugger, which has a similar interior mouth that goes inside you. And then, so it uses two yeah, the, separate the mouths. Proboscis, yeah. Yeah, uh, to, to impregnate you and then to kill you. And this idea that it's, if you look at Giger's work, it's terrifying, but within that terrifying aesthetic, it's tubes going into orifices. Um, it's It's so much like... What's happening here? And you can look at that creature and ask yourself, what's happening here? We don't know. And that's what makes it terrifying. And I think to pivot back to kind of the the idea of creature design and seeing things, iterations of things we've seen over and over and over, and even like A Quiet Place, which I thought had great potential before I'd seen the creature. And then I saw it, and I'm like, it just looks like the Demogorgon on all fours. They didn't really do it, and they think, and people think teeth make things scary. Teeth do not make things scary. Their behavior makes them scary. So, like in like in a quiet place, which again I have really high bars in terms of creature design. Like, do work, man. And I can tell that they just probably had six or seven different artists on there working on a, a creature design. And you know, you have your director. Oh yeah, let's use that one. That one looks great. Let me back up a little bit. What also makes the beast work in Alien, it's surrounded by this life cycle that we don't fully understand, but we know something, you know, they don't really know what they're seeing when Kane is brought back on the ship with the facehugger and and then Kane, when he first sees the Aggie, doesn't really know what he's seeing. So there's a lot of unknowns happening. In the next couple of movies, they understand the creature a little bit more. Um, so it, the world that's being surrounded or that's surrounding the the beast makes a little bit of sense for it too. There's a little you can feel the mythology. You can feel the the history of this beast when you see it, um, and that's why details matter. Whereas if you see lesser films or lesser beasts like A Quiet Place, you're like, this is dumb. I've never thought that about 
the creature, about uh, Giger's Beast. This is dumb. This doesn't work. Because there's been so much care and and attention paid to its life cycle, the way it looks, every detail on its face, on its body, so you can feel its history. It, and, and, and because it reflects some of our own biology or uh, what do you call it when you're in terms of how we're like, it reflects some of our, our own humanity um, in terms of how we're, how we're made and how we're built. That gets under, so we can see that, like, oh, it kind of looks like us a little bit, but it's not us at all. But is it? What are they thinking? Do they think? And so we ask ourselves those questions of the beast that we never ask ourselves for A Quiet Place or um, DJ Abrams' film or the white the white spike things. We don't ask those questions. We don't care. We're like, oh, look, interesting. What is it thinking? We don't, they're just there to kill. They're, they're there to kill and destroy. And that's when you make a beast to only be that, it becomes way less interesting to me. Right. If you make a beast that's imbued with more intelligence, more questions, and that's what good design is, you know, is it, and I think that's what good sci-fi is. And we've talked about this a lot. Good sci-fi asks hard questions. It's not out to answer them. It's out to ask them. And, Giger asked us questions, asks us questions with that design. And very few artists get that these days in their, in yeah. their own. Something I want to say, you know, you're saying we're asking ourselves, what is it? To me, part of what's so fascinating is actually what was it and what mm-hmm. could it be, right? Those are the questions because we see humanity in this design and especially, you know, our mutual favorite design, the, the unused, you know, Giger concept for Alien 3 like there it's so close to being human in some ways that it's scary it's like wh- like what what happened to this person almost is there was there a person in there at some point why does it look like us why does it have like hip bones that look like my own bipedal hip bones that i see every day when i get ready for the for the day you know mm-hmm. um like the the recognizable human aspects to it i think are a huge reason why it's so interesting and why it's so frightening and i also th- and and again going back to covenant part of why i really love the design work that happened for alien covenant is that it it leans into that very hard a lot of the especially dane and matt's pre-production sketches where you see you know metastasized skulls with some growths on them like it reminds mm-hmm. me a lot of annihilation like that stuff to me that is where alien is frightening and that is where i hope noah Hawley's series goes and where i hope the future of this is is like show bring us back to this unknown i I want to say a brief example of that you know the first time we see the full creature which was called alien 3 actually in the in the production process because it was a third life cycle Mm -hmm. stage they call it alien 3 um the first time we see the big chap as it is the big chap we know now of course is when it descends upon uh upon uh brett in the holding bay and what I love is that we're confronted, like this is such a testament to Scott and to Oban and to everybody else. We're confronted with even more confusing elements than there already are visually on the creature, right? So it descends for one thing upside down, which is mm-hmm. super weird, right? So we're already like, well, how the fuck is this thing moving? I mean, even even now, like watching it today, I, there's there's I, I don't really know how it's doing that, right? It's just a confusing physical movement. And then when it does come down and he turns around to see it, we're confronted with basically like the only way I can, I can express it is like an 
like uh, an an orgasm of unclarity, right? Mm-hmm. Of unclarity. It is like the most confusing thing to be looking at because we're confronted with this super close up view of Rimbaldi's head mechanism, right? We're confronted with just the face of this thing as it's vibrating and shaking its mouth open and pouring water out of everywhere. This this incredible secretion that it has, steaming, right? And these lips peeling back to show metal teeth that are clearly human teeth with some mm-hmm. differences. And then a mouth that gradually opens as it's shaking and spraying water all over the place and another mouth opening up within that. So the first time audience, and no eyes, right? The first time audiences saw that, it must have been such an unsettling moment. And to this day, I mean, it's one of my absolute favorite moments in all of film history for that reason, because it's like your mind overloads. And I, it reminds me of, you know, for example, in, a lot of people talk about how this represents sort of our remembered past as humans. Like if you were a human, you know, 80,000 years ago, my timeline's not going to be right on this. And you were confronted by a saber-toothed tiger or a saber, saber-toothed cat, right? In the middle of the night, you would be overwhelmed. Your your senses would not have any idea how to process what you're seeing because you would be looking at your own death right in the face. Brett in that moment is seeing something incomprehensible and in that incomprehensibility lies oblivion. And so to me, and this actually is something that we're going to have her on the show soon, which I'm excited about, but uh, Sarah Welch Larson, who wrote this great book, which people should pick up before we record about it called Becoming Alien, you know, she talks about how the alien represents negation. And that I think is really important. It's like looking at oblivion in the face and seeing it manifested, seeing mm-hmm. what happens when we don't matter anymore. And that's a very powerful thing to be confronted with visually. And that's where the motivation for this design is coming from. It's not coming from, oh, watch out, it's got large canine teeth that can rip you apart. It's coming out of you're staring at the end of yourself. Mm-hmm. What does that look like? And that is mm-hmm. just uh, ex- extraordinary, extraordinarily powerful to me. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I think that it's really well put, Patrick. And it's different. It's a different type of kind of the end of us that, okay, we see a big monster in whatever, like if it's, whether it's Stephen King's The Mist or that movie called Monsters that uh, I think Gareth Edwards directed, which yeah, is great, but you look at him, okay, they're a monster, you don't, okay, they're big enough to think oh, they're like dinosaurs, oh, they're scary for sure, but, and we can like kind of put together like, let's not get in their way, they're big enough to get out of their way, let's not get in their way, but the beast, Giger's beast, is is like oblivion absolutely and i think what it also does is i i have had a fear of spiders all of my life i'm also fascinated by them i can look at them part of the fear i have of giger's beast is the same fear i have of spiders you look at them and you see their legs and you're like what are they doing with those legs why do they need that many legs i mean we know that they spin webs and very intricate and they have very intricate designs and there's certain spiders if you look at their carapace or their their whole body, you'll see like ribbing and all this really almost like their their ex, their exoskeletons been sewn. It's just beautiful and terrifying because you're like, look at the detail on these things. And you know, you can see other kinds of bugs or things in nature, some that blend in like leaf bugs or whatever. They stick bugs, they blend into their surroundings. You're like, oh, okay, you could make sense for for, you know, they, they want to not be eaten by birds or whatever. So they have to, and we can be like, oh, look how pretty they are. They look like a stick. They look like a leaf. They look like a flower. Um, but then you have praying mantises that much like Giger's beast, they become, they almost, they, they are imbued with this 
beauty, this terrifying beauty. And there, and if you ever look at a praying mantis like up close, which there's plenty of photos of, that thing looks fucking terrifying. I've not seen a bug more terrifying than the praying mantis. Yeah, Yo, you fucking hate praying mantises. Uh, I, they freak me this out. Is like they a really thing do. For you. you fucking hate I, oh, them. Oh, totally. I have a story about that that'll tell you. Point. But they're um, very beautiful too though their they eyes are, are incredible a bunch right? hatched in my bedroom as a child from <laughs> eggs i'll tell you about that later oh my god <laughs> i was terrified yes 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 um and they were scurrying over my fish tank too anyways i have but see but it's memories like that that the that this creature brings out for us because we remember those moments when we were kids where we were confronted with something terrifying that we couldn't contextualize yet yes, and, it, and yes. it's overloading us right yeah. And I think to your point in terms of like staring into oblivion, when these things look at us, we are the apex predator. We, we, for all intents and purposes, we, yes, there are fish in the sea that could swallow us, but we rule the sea and we know better. And yes, there's a, there's bears that could tear us limb from limb as with monkeys, but all we got to do is pick up a gun and shoot them dead. We are still the number one predator. The alien changes all of that for us. And it says, for once in our lives, you do not matter. And we're not just going to kill you. We're going to use you. We're going to use your body to facilitate our own growth. It's almost like things that we do. We look at nature and we say, we're going to destroy you and then use you to make ourselves better, to build our cities taller, to make our cars run faster, to, to whatever. And that's terrifying too. And I would imagine... Nature sees us and it looks into its death, much like we look into the alien and see our death. I totally agree. And I think that's a major theme that I hope we get to talk more about because it's an important one. We talk so much about the sexual violence that the creature represents, and we talk so much about repressed you know, desire or repressed fears that it represents. But one of the things that we really don't talk about enough is how it doesn't appear to care very much about us in the way that we're used to being cared about, right? We live in a society and in a, on a planet where everything is basically defined by our existence in it or our absence from it. By that, I mean, when you walk into the forest, every single creature that is in that forest that can detect you is afraid of you, right? If they're not afraid of you, it's because they are domesticated, or it's because they have some acute physiological need, like protecting children, in mm-hmm. which case we say, okay, well, that's why it's doing that. But there's no, you know, our lives are not lived in fear that we will be stalked in the woods by something that doesn't actually want to kill us yet, by something that wants something else. We have no other setting for that. And indeed, and I say this as a monster movie obsessive, you know, if looking back through the Corman films, looking back through the earlier films, all the creature features of the 50s and 60s, like the theme was always, uh oh, it's scary, watch out, right? Which is something that we're used to. Like we understand what that's like. Uh, and the the you know benefit of being human, I guess, if you want to look at it like that, is that we can usually do something about it. We can go back into our house, we can go back into our car, we can shoot it, like you said. You know, we 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 have ensconced ourselves in all of these mechanisms to protect ourselves from this fundamental truth, which is that we still exist on a food chain. We still exist as something vulnerable. And the fear of vulnerability, that's something that I think many of us are feeling more acutely than ever in the age of COVID mm-hmm. and in the age of you know communicable disease, like this, this sense of holy shit, we're not actually the masters of the universe that we thought we were, we are actually like in more danger day to day than we realized, right? That's a very scary place to be in. And when you're confronted by a creature that is able to, without looking at you, communicate that they have no fear whatsoever, and they're also not particularly excited about killing you, that they have other things to do that you don't need to know about because you don't actually matter that much. That's frightening to me. The fact that you can look at this thing and it can basically relay back to you 
you don't matter. I have plans for you. Don't, mm -hmm. you know, you don't need to know what they are. That's very it's, scary. It's terrifying. And I, as we continue to get, I know we need to wrap soon, but as we continue to have this discussion and talk about this beast, and I can't wait to hear our team and hear what they think and hear what scares them about it and how it's gotten under their skin and open this door to this community experience of this creature and why we're obsessive about it. Like I'm a creature guy too. I mean, I, I'll go see, even though I don't really care for predator, I'll go see him because I want to see that thing. Um, but nothing scares me like the alien. However, one thing I do want to talk about eventually, and I'll just open the door for this right now is even though like, okay, so we're living in this period right now of, of world history where this little tiny bacteria or, you know, um, virus. It's getting into our bodies, not to kill us. I mean, it has killed people, obviously, but that's not its intent. Its intent is to grow and change and live and then move and get worse and grow and change and move and stay alive. And it's using us to do that. That's terrifying. And like the alien, it then... And worse than the alien, we know if someone's face hugged. We know if someone's carrying an embryo, a chest burster. We don't know who's carrying COVID. So everyone's a threat. And we don't know if I catch this version of it, will I end up in the hospital? Will it kill me? Or will it just be mild symptoms? We don't know, even if we're vaccinated. And so the parallels to me between Giger's creation, its life cycle, and the life and the and the um, the world we're living in today, there are a lot of parallels there, and it's terrifying. Like, I mean, I I was packing for this trip, and I threw in two two COVID tests, and I'm just looking at myself like, and like when I got here, Kathy has some COVID uh, rapid tests on her shelf, and I'm just like, wow, what a dystopia we live in. Like, we're this worried about infecting others or being infected um, by something we don't know uh, that could ravish us. And even if we survive it, we could have long-term symptoms of, um, and how parallel it is to the insidiousness of Giger's creation. So I'm excited to explore that more. Yeah. And, and as somebody who has, you know, we've been dealing with having COVID in our household lately, there is this similar sense of powerlessness because we have done absolutely everything right this entire time and it's still found a way in. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Micah's been talking about, because she, she I, I haven't gotten it, but but she's dealing with it currently, how it really feels like uh, it, you can tell that it's in, in some ways approximating a living organism because of the way that it works through the body. Like right now, it's like very firmly in her chest and it's like making it uncomfortable for her to breathe, you know? Mm -hmm. And that's and that's a triple vaccinated nurse who wears PPE everywhere she goes like that's some that's somebody who's done everything right so you can really get the sense of what it was like in the early days of the pandemic if you came down with it this 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 idea of like i death is just around the door potentially at any moment and a lot of us are feeling the psychological ramifications of living for 2 years with that and living for 2 years with this idea that there are things out there that don't care about us you know we're so used to to, or, to organizing everything around ourselves and our place in the universe and then a virus comes along and it barely notices us other than the fact that we're a bunch of carbon that it can use to spread itself hosts yes we're, we're hosts. hosts for the yep. for the organism right and so the alien i think is a, obviously an early window into that for us 
of course, it's also about, you know, parasitism and it's about all these other things that we're now becoming more familiar with because of our lived experience. So there's a lot of reasons why the alien feels more relevant than ever. And that's something I hope we can talk about in this series. And also with how when they revisited it in Covenant, although some of the narrative decisions are problematic, I think, for anybody, the design feels eternally timeless to me because yes. what they did was they went back to Necronom 4 and they basically restarted from the beginning and thought, how can we do this, but also make it feel more human from a, a physiological anatomical standpoint? So they compared it with medical textbooks. They got this amazing book from Italy on these, you know, like historical corpse dissections, and they found one that was really elongated and really human, but very different. And they put that with Giger's Necronom 4, and they started creating this articulated almost corpse of, of ourselves, like we were back from the dead, but transmogrified. It's really, really interesting. I'm hoping we're going to get some of the people who worked on those designs on this series. We have some friends that might be able to come. Uh, so this, this is going to be a great exploration. And this is just the this is just the beginning. So we're really excited to be here. Um, before we kind of close, close out, and I'll turn it over to you, I want to make sure we do a shout out. We have some new patrons who we're extremely thankful for. Uh, and I'm just going to go ahead and, and read their names out. So just in the last few weeks, actually the last week, wow, this is just the last week. We've got uh, Michael Scudieri. We've got Austin Williamson. We've got Retronauts Does Adventure Game Episodes, which is a podcast you should check out. And we just, a couple days ago, got Dan Young uh, on board the USS Aranome. So thank you for joining us and thank you for helping us to make these uh, episodes you know, more ambitious than ever before. Absolutely. Thank you, everyone, for our, our listeners and just how our show has grown so much. Like, Perfect Organism is huge right now. It's the biggest show in alien fandom. We're honored to have that spot. Um, we're honored to be where we are in fandom, to have our listeners, to have the support, um, and to have Patreon to help us do more and better. And um, Patreon has paid for actors for our audio drama that's dropping on Alien Day of this year. Uh, but I wanted to make mention of one thing before we leave, which is a new Patreon-exclusive show called Sublime Noise. And Sublime Noise is me and Patrick, which will mostly be me and him. We will have some guests on occasionally here and there, but it's a series where we're exploring film scores. And part of my love of film comes from film scores, which I know it's the same for you. And our first episode, which will be available publicly, but then the rest of them will be only for subscribers, is covering Hans Zimmer score to Interstellar, which is absolutely phenomenal. So we invite everyone to sign up for $4 a month, perfectorganism.com forward slash support. You can get our, you know, you'll be able to get our first episode of Sublime Noise for free. Um, but also beyond that, we have 70 episodes or 60 something episodes of frame rate, which is our film review show, which we'll probably eventually visit at some point. But right now we're sticking to sublime noise. We really feel like it's a good fit for our dynamic and what people want to hear because a lot of the people who listen to these shows love scores. They love hearing us talk about it. They love talking about it. So that's where we are. Um, and if you sign up with Patreon, you will hear everything that we have to offer. So we're excited. We're excited to introduce that to you. And also don't feel, uh, you know, bashful about suggesting films and scores for us to, to do, because I, I mean, even for ones that I'm not familiar with yet, like there's very few things I enjoy more than listening to a film score I've never heard before. So, you know, we're, we're always down for that. Yeah, for sure. So thanks everyone for Thank listening you everybody. and we'll be back soon. For more on Perfect Organism, the Alien Saga podcast, please visit 
perfectorganism.com. Perfect Organism is available for listen or download through Podbean, iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, and Spotify. If you'd like to support the show, please visit perfectorganism.com forward slash support. Thank you.